Thanks, Pam. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. Shout out to you folks on Zoom and Facebook. Glad you're there. Uh, I want to begin this morning uh, with Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. And I want to remind us uh, where it comes from. So Juneteenth is the annual commemoration of the end of slavery in the United States. And it happens on June 19th every year because that was the day, June 19th, in excuse me, 1865, when Union Army General in the Civil War named Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, and announced to everyone that the Civil War had ended and that slavery was over. People hadn't known until then, which was a long time after the Emancipation Proclamation, about two and a half years. Uh, This is a plaque in Galveston that commemorates uh, that day, June 19, 1865. Now, uh, the... Announcement put into effect the Emancipation Proclamation, as I mentioned, and since the 1800s, on June 19th, people have been celebrating this day with uh, family potlucks and food and music and festivals. Um, Here is Iowa City's own festival in 2021. Lots of cities have done this for literally 100 plus years. Juneteenth has been going on. Last year, President Biden signed legislation that made Juneteenth a federally recognized holiday. So banks won't be open tomorrow, and you won't get any mail. And other folks are starting to recognize Juneteenth as a holiday as well. And so we can expect more and more recognition and commemoration of Juneteenth, which is very, very good. Um, So this morning, though, I thought we could take a minute uh, to explore the connection between faith and Juneteenth and some of the themes and values of Juneteenth and how our faith speaks to that. Now, it's not as straightforward of a connection as we might like to think or we might hope for. And that's because, sadly, in the history of American Christianity, uh, most Christians took the side of slaveholders, not the slaves, not those enslaved. The Bible itself was frequently used as a weapon of oppression that supported the institution of slavery. And that one of the reasons is because there are over 200 verses in the Bible that expressly support slavery or at least assume that its existence as an institution. And I'll give one quick example from American history in this. There are thousands of these, but here's one pamphlet. This is the cover. Uh, published in 1860 by the Reverend Thornton Stringfellow of Culpeper County, Virginia. Uh, and it is uh, the relationship to society, to government, and to the true religion, to human happiness and divine glory, the origin, nature, and history of slavery. Um, and he goes on to use the Bible ruthlessly in his support of the institution of slavery. And I read parts of this, and it just—it was kind of shocking, honestly, just stunning to see the Bible that I love and cherish be used with such great harm uh, like this. And again, there are thousands of examples of these. To be fair, there are dozens of passages in the Bible that encourage liberation and emancipation and abolition of slavery. And so the Bible was used by those seeking emancipation and the abolition of slavery as well. And I want to take a look at one of those passages this morning. And it comes from everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. Woohoo! Now, the passage that we're going to read through uh, has to do with what's called the year of Jubilee. 
the year of Jubilee. And I've taken a selection of verses because it gets a little bit repetitive, and even in our section you'll see some of that, from chapter 25 of Leviticus. A warning. It's going to feel like reading your employee handbook or like the handbook of your you know, education institution. Um, and it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but super important when the details matter, right? <laughs> like, okay, what do we do? Um, and in this passage, Moses the prophet is speaking to all the people of Israel, and it's really, though, God speaking. So Moses is representing God speaking and acting on God's behalf to all the people. So here we go. We're going to hear the voice of God as represented through Moses in Leviticus 25. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Let me pause there. You sh- that last sentence, you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. This is inscribed on a famous American artifact. Which one? Anybody know? What? Liberty Bell. Who said it? Oh, 10 points for Ravenclaw. Yes. Yes, the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia has this inscribed. You shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Very fun. There you go. Some trivia for the day. I get to do this. It's Father's Day. Dad jokes, dad trivia. This is it, folks. This is why we're here. All right. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. Uh, Excuse me. Where am I? That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your property. What they're saying there is, if you've sold your land, it reverts back to the original owner on the year of jubilee. It's not a permanent sale. I'll talk about that in a bit. When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. Good guideline. When you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only for the number of years since the Jubilee. The seller shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. If the years are more, you shall increase the price. If the years are fewer, you shall diminish the price. For it is a certain number of harvests that are being sold to you. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. With me, you are but aliens and tenants. Goes on, last one. If any who are dependent on you become so impoverished that they sell themselves to you, you shall not make them service slaves. They shall remain with you as hired or bound laborers. They shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children with them shall be free from your authority. They shall go back to their own family and return to their ancestral property, for they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves are sold. All right, now you can tell all your friends you read Leviticus today, and it was inspiring. Or we'll see. I hope it is. (laughs) Okay. Now, the year of Jubilee. So it is a year that is celebrated every seven times seven years or 49 years. 
Um, actually, that's debatable. Some say it's 50 years and 49, and there's this long-running debate among the rabbis. We have, this is so fun, we have records going back just before the time of Jesus of rabbis arguing about whether or not the Jubilee is celebrated on the 49th or 50th year. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? I mean, people want to make the Bible so simple. It's not. It's enormously complex, and you get lawyers in the room, and oh my gosh, they can argue about everything. It's great. Awesome stuff. Okay, anyway, let me summarize what the Jubilee meant. And there are four major economic or political policy enactments in the year of Jubilee. We're talking policy, folks. This is good stuff. Number one, all land is returned to the original owner or family. So in the story prior to this, the Israelites come into a land and every family is apportioned their own land on which to live and to work and to prosper. If they came on hard times, misfortune strikes, they need some money, they could sell their land. But the sale was only good up until the year of Jubilee, at which point it would be returned to the original family owner. The rationale for this is pretty profound. God tells them, the land is mine. <laughs> I'm the owner, says God. Y'all are just tenants or aliens on my land. I'm going to let you use it, but it's mine. Here's a pie chart showing land ownership in the Bible. Okay? Land ownership cannot change hands permanently because there's already a forever owner of the land, and it is God. So y'all can use it. You might sell it to one another to use or borrow for a while, but that's going to revert to the original owners who had it. Every 49 or maybe 50 years, we'll let the lawyers decide. Okay. All right, number two. In the year of Jubilee, agricultural work stops. The land gets to rest. There's no sowing or planting of seeds. Things still grow, though, uh, you know, because seeds from the previous year accidentally, quote-unquote, fall to the ground, and they will grow again. Um, I experience this now with my sunflowers. I have a row of sunflowers that I planted one year, and now they grow every year. And in the fall, the finches Friends, the finches just love my house. The house finches, the gold finches, because I have sunflowers everywhere and I don't plant them. It's so cruel. So that's a big part of the year of Jubilee. The land gets to rest. Number three, enslaved people are freed. Enslaved people are freed. And we're back to this key celebration of today, Juneteenth. Here's a photo from uh, the Juneteenth Festival in Cincinnati. Uh, pretty awesome. And I just... I just love that. I love the images. I love the, fe the festivals, the party of what Jubilee is. Now, admittedly, the uh, Jubilee rules are different from what Juneteenth commemorates because Jubilee is not permanent, okay? It's temporary. If you had fallen on hard times and sold yourself into sort of an indentured labor situation, then you were set free on the year of Jubilee. Juneteenth is a celebration of the end, the abolition of slavery permanently, forever, okay? Um, and actually, it gets even more complicated in Torah and the Bible because people who did not belong to the nation of Israel 
they could be slaves permanently or forever. So there's a double standard there, and there's a lot to figure out there and how we interpret that. But anyway, it's not perfect, but it's a kind of emancipation. And those who are free go back to their land. They are immediately empowered with, a kind, with an opportunity to be prosperous, uh, to be secure on their homeland. Number four, our final policy proposal enacted, debts are canceled. Now, debts are canceled actually every seven years, according to Torah. It's part of what's called the sabbatical year. So these seven cycles, or excuse me, a cycle of seven years, the seventh year being a sabbatical year where all debts are canceled. Can you imagine that? Every debt canceled every seven years? Wow. Um, Here's a verse from Deuteronomy that makes it even clearer. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. (laughs) All right. Okay. Um, And, you know, this is is pretty amazing. So Jesus picks up on this too. In what we call the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, one of the lines is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Greek word in the Greek manuscript for this, we have it translated into modern English, but in the original Greek, that word for debt means economic debts. It's the same word for everyday economic debts. It can also be a metaphor for what we owe someone or things, ways we've fallen short of our duty. We could say sins or trespasses. So those are equally valid or good interpretations or translations of the word. Uh, but debts is another one that Jesus calls. So I, to me, it feels like Jesus uses this rather expansive word that can speak to both the everyday economic issues of debts, but also our moral failings. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. All right, so to recap, here it is, the four uh, policy enactments of the year Jubilee. And when you take this together, it is extremely progressive, is it not? I mean, this resets all of society. It levels the playing field. It provides a stopgap measure for increasing wealth disparity. It breaks the cycle of generational poverty, setting up everyone with another shot at prosperity and security. Now, a fun way to imagine how this works is the game of Monopoly, or the Iowaopoly version pictured here. Um, Okay, imagine playing Iowaopoly and every 30 minutes, the game resets to the starting position. <laughs> it would never end. No one would win, right? That's the point of Jubilee. The point is shared prosperity, shared security. And we recognize that there are some who are more fortunate and some who are less. But there's a time and a place where we reset the board in real life, where the stakes matter. All right, now, I wish that I could show you a model, an example of how this got worked out practically, uh, but I can't. And the reason is because Jubilee 
has never been enacted. It's never been done. It was never tried. Or at least there is no historical record of this ever happening. And part of that might be, might be, because we've lost historical records. My hunch is that the people who got the fortune were a bit like, how about we not? How about we not? Another reason, just practically, is that all kinds of invading empires came in and took over the land of Israel. So that was a real factor. Like the Assyrian empire comes in, then the Babylonian empire comes in. And then like, how do you figure out land disputes after 100 or 150 years? Like who owns the land? I mean, besides God, you know, who's, but whose land is it? Like, how do we figure that out? Very, very difficult dispute. So this is hard. There have been, however, modern day attempts to enact a kind of jubilee. So for example, there are today some conversations and real policy debate about student debt, student loan forgiveness or debt cancellation. Uh, it's become a major policy proposal, as many of you are aware, and uh, it's, it's receiving serious consideration about what that could look like. There have been lots of conversations of a kind of jubilee around prisons and law enforcement. And here's one example. Check out this tweet I saw on Twitter from this week. This is from the Hawaii State uh, Department of Corrections. There are zero incarcerated girls in Hawaii. For the first time in history of Hawaii Youth Correctional Facility, it's empty of girls. This is no fluke or accident. HYCF has been empty for weeks after years of work to replace handcuffs with healing. So this is an institution that decided, yes, amen. This is Juneteenth, enacted today. It's Jubilee, enacted today. Um, So you had folks probably working for decades looking at this problem and thinking, how do we not use prison as a solution to a problem that demands other creative alternatives to actually help people heal and enter society in productive, healthy ways. That's the hope. Um, And so, yeah, that's that's another example. Finally, um, one more example is from 2014. The country Iceland enacted a kind of jubilee in which Icelanders received massive reduction in debt on their home mortgages. Uh, It was um, controversial because some people had home mortgages and some people did not, as you can imagine. Um, And actually, Planet Money, which is one of my favorite podcasts uh, hosted from NPR, they did an episode on this years ago. And um, it was great. They did a great job because they brought on guests, some of whom were recipients or benefactors of this and some who were not. And they just heard from both perspectives, you know. Um, So it was. It was hard. It's, It's fraught. It's complicated. It's complex. Welcome to the world of economics, right? But here's the thing, friends. Jubilee is good. Jubilee is great. It is good news. It's great. It's about liberation and empowerment. It's about breaking those cycles of generational poverty and debt that gets passed down to to children and their children and their children. And so as complicated as it might be to figure out policy enactments, we can still wholeheartedly embrace the goals of Jubilee, 
the ideas of liberation. I find these ideas super compelling, obviously. I'm preaching about it. (laughs) And I get excited, though, when I think about people being set free. When I pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, I cannot but think about jubilee, about liberation, about the release that might be possible in a kind of jubilee. Suppose, friends, that I wasn't so much a benefactor or received the benefits of Jubilee, but I was asked to pay for it. What then? What if I was asked to pay the bill for someone else's liberation and freedom? Would I still be as excited for it? I hope so. I don't know, but I hope so. It's, that's what I aspire to be, the kind of person who would gladly and willingly give up something for another person's benefit, another person's liberation. I hope we could all aspire to be that. I believe that's what our faith calls us to, shared security and prosperity. That's the gospel. That's Jesus A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of visiting one of the underground railroad houses in Iowa. Uh, There are a few of these that you can visit, which is super powerful. The one I visited was in, or is, in Salem, Iowa. Uh, Here's a photo of it. Um, And it's the Llewellyn House in Salem, Iowa. And I actually toured it with about two dozen other clergy from around the state of Iowa. And so we took a tour. Uh, One of the tour guides, by the way, is the great-great-granddaughter of Llewellyn himself. This guy, what's his first name? Where is it? Henderson. There it is. Henderson Llewellyn. I had to get his full name. It's just great. Um, So there she is in the top kind of center of the photo, she's the great-great-granddaughter of Henderson Llewellyn, and she's standing by the trap door. Very clever. This trap door is in the kitchen of the house, which would be the busiest, noisiest room in the house. Perfect for where you want to hide people who are fleeing slavery. Okay, and so we got to actually go down in there and sort of explore that crawl space. It's still the same crawl space. Some of it's the same wood floor. I mean, they, they built this house very, very well, and they built it with this design. It was incredible. This house sits 25 miles north of the Missouri border, where black people, African Americans, took the absolute courageous step of fleeing for their lives and safety. And the only place they could go that was safe was Canada, because every state they could be caught, captured, and returned back to enslavement. They risked their lives, of course, seeking their own freedom. And then people along the way would host houses, these underground railroads, what they called them, safe houses. And they themselves were risking their livelihoods and sometimes their lives in helping escaped folks who were formerly enslaved. Now, the Llewellyn family were Quakers, which is a branch of the Christian faith. And it was their faith 
that compelled them to take that risk, to take a step and say, we are going to be part of this. We're going to do it. And they did. Now, after the tour of this house, it was super inspiring. Uh, The clergy members, we uh, got to take some time and have some conversation around modern-day abolition movements. You know, slavery in the United States has ended, but there are still systemic evils of oppression that exist. We talked, frankly, about some of the issues related to mass incarceration and prisons, how policing is carried out. We talked about generational cycles of poverty and debt and many other aspects that feel related. Now, I know these are enormously complex issues. I mean, just so, so complex. And we we were all kind of, you know, in our conversation acknowledging that. But they are issues that need reform. And that's almost universally acknowledged. You know, even folks in those systems, they recognize, "Eh, we're not doing it the way we might be able to do it. Yes, yes. And all of us clergy, we brought our faith to the table thinking about how we might be part of the imagined alternative to what's currently in place. We hold out hope for a jubilee, an emancipation, a liberation, a fresh start, a resetting of the table. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors literally. This is part of the legacy of Juneteenth. It's part of the vision of Jubilee we've received in our Bible. It's part of the vision, the gospel of Jesus. When he came announcing the kingdom of God, the good news for the poor, that, friends, is our invitation This Juneteenth, as we celebrate it, as we commemorate it, let us figure out ways we might honor it by today taking risks, courageously stepping forward. I know it's messy. It's complicated. Fine. Let's get into the mess. And let's see what happens when we explore liberation. We won't know until we try it. Who's with me? Let's do it. Amen.